Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. In this episode, we talk about RGB lighting on memory and some of the history behind it, and look at two great 500 series gaming cards. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McKay. Hey, Dennis, you know, we've talked a lot in previous podcasts about RGB lighting and all the silly implementations. Yes, I'm looking at you, mouse pads. And, you know, I roll my eyes at some of those, but I have to admit that I'm a big fan with my window case of themed lighting. And Crucial has come up with, I think, the first memory product that I've gotten excited about in a long time. Now, you know that, that we're big Crucial fans here because they're local. Mm-hmm. And they've put out a really rockin' new version of their Tracer memory. Remember Tracer? I remember Tracer. So those go back a long ways. So this is a really exciting announcement for me because the Tracer ballistic memory, the DDR4 version, has programmable RGB lighting, and it will do orange. It'll match the case. Nice. And it looks great, and it's not gaudy. And one more really cool thing that I have to admit I'm kind of excited about, and I don't even have a good reason. The light diffuser that they use to light up the top of that can be removed and replaced with a 3D printed version that you create yourself. So we could do crazy orange flames. You could do flames. We could do anything you want. Yeah, and I'm excited about that. Now, we haven't really gotten too deep into the 3D printing market here, but I'm excited about that. And the last time I was really excited about something like that was when we could 3D print the mice to match your shape. And that kind of hasn't been that exciting. But light diffusers, yeah bring on the crazy RGB lighting. And I think this is the first time I've seen an implementation like that. I look at these memories and we have your standard heat spreaders on both sides. And then of course the diffuser across the top that can be removed. And it looks like there's just a couple of screws holding it in place. But the thing that didn't attract me to ballistics originally was because Crucial, ever since maybe the DDR3 transition, they got away from doing high speed memories that you would use for overclocking with low timings and high frequencies. But that's not necessarily why you would go with the ballistics tracers, because you want to have the RGB lights up there that are programmable. There's two different ways that you can do that currently. So we have the ballistics right now, and these appear to be on-memory module sort of uh, LEDs that are controlled through the motherboard. Yeah, and I think you're right, because I do believe that they have a software implementation for changing and controlling them, which I know we're starting to see in more products. Right. The important thing is that there isn't any tails on these. The reason that's important is because we have some Guile Evo X memories here. Okay. And if we pull those out of the box, I'll show those to you really quick. Oh, yeah. Now, this is pretty looking. Oh, much larger RAM, too. Okay. Wait on. Now, I'm seeing this cable. That's got to be what you're talking about. So these memory modules, basically, we have a Guile module at the bottom. And at the very top is the RGB LED module. And it makes the two pieces separate inside there. So what do you plug this thing into? What controls them? Any sort of RGB LED controller. Oh. So we have a wire that plugs into the module on the top for power and also for the control. And then that will plug into your external controller or directly into the motherboard so that you can control that with the motherboard software or your little remote. The benefits here are that Guile can use any sort of memory module at the bottom inside this Evo X shell. And there isn't any latency for when the lights change. Unfortunately, with like the tracer and this other module that we're going to look at where there isn't a tail, 
there's a bit of a lag between when the signal for the light changes to when it gets to the memory module. Right. So on your motherboard, it might be flashing orange, and then a millisecond later, it'll flash orange on the memory module. So it'll be slightly out of sync when you do it this way, but you don't have any tails to plug in. Whereas with this Evo X module, you plug that tail in, and it's going to be just like it's another strip or a fan or anything that's RGB LED controlled. Right, and I I like that, but now we're talking about not only do I have to buy my memory, but I have to come up with a controller. Are there motherboards that support this natively? Every single one of them supports that natively because it's using the header that's on the motherboard. Oh, okay. Well, that's not so bad then. This is a kind of a retrofit as well. So on your particular motherboard that we put into the Core V51 mod, you don't have an onboard LED RGB controller. So we can use an external controller and use these modules on there off of that controller. We don't have to rely on what's available on the motherboard. We can put this into anything that supports DDR4. Okay, now this is starting to ring a bell with me because that would mean that if I had supported lights elsewhere in my case, mm-hmm. I could control them off the same controller. Right. So the question is, do you need to buy all the same ecosystem to make that solution work? Not necessarily because these are just standard 4-pin RGB LED plugs. Some of the Gigabyte motherboards have a 5-pin, which is an RGBW or an RGB UV or something like right. that. These are the standard 4-pin, so anything that has the 4-pin controller will work with those particular modules. Very nice. Well, I like that, and I see Asus and MSI branded stickers on the box here, so that's a pretty good, at least, compatibility note. Now, Dennis, you mentioned that there is a different solution to how they implement RGB lights on memory, and I'm grabbing these. Oh, these are pretty. Um, This is the G-Skill Trident Z RGBs that are running at 4133. Oh, wow. Yeah, if that number seems high, it's because it only works on the Maximus 9 Apex from Asus. Well, that's not maybe a permanent thing, though, right? No, there should be some better support, especially when the X299 comes out. But a lot of the KB Lake systems that would use this memory have four DIMM SOTs. And for this memory to work at that speed, it has to have two because there's too much interference. Interesting. Now, this is very similar in form factor to the Crucial Ballistics memory. Mm-hmm. And I see that, at least in the package, it doesn't have any kind of cabling. So how does the information, how does the, you know, I just don't get it. How does it get controlled? <laughs> okay, so this is using the same sort of control that we see on the Crucial Ballistics Tracer memory. And incidentally, also on the HyperX RGB LEDs. And there isn't a tail on here. So the way that it gets a signal is over the same channel that the SPD is used. Well, the same channel that the motherboard uses to get the SPD information from the module, basically knowing that you plugged in a memory Mm -hmm. and what speed it is and how to program the motherboard to that speed. Interesting. So how does that affect the uh, the performance of the ecosystem? How do you control these things? Well, you control it using your motherboard RGB software. So this only work on motherboards that have an onboard RGB LED controller. Oh. So this is a little bit different than the Evo X in that it only works on certain motherboards, whereas the Evos will work on anything with DDR4 memory sockets. The one problem with these, though, is that there is a bit of a latency between when an RGB signal is done on the motherboard to when it gets to the memory module because it has to go through that slower channel to actually activate them. Right. But the benefit is that you don't have an extra tail. You can just kind of plug it in. And ideally, it's going to use the voltage that would normally be used for 
controlling memory to control the RGB LEDs. I can see that, but these I feel like are really echo structure limited. So you have to really plan around this type of memory, especially with the speed, mm-hmm. but also you need to get a compatible motherboard. So that's not true with the Crucial? I believe the Crucial is going to have the same sort of limitations in that it's going to have to do the same communication over that same channel and that the motherboard manufacturers are going to have to allow that to happen in their software because that is what's going to keep like these G-Skilled Triton Zs don't necessarily work on a gigabyte motherboard because of not necessarily the speed, but because of the way that the software communicates the RGB signals to everything in your ecosystem. Oh, I get that. Now, I know it hasn't always been like that because this is not a new technology lighting on memory, right? So what, what do they do differently? Well, these ones obviously are done for RGB LED sort of situations, but we have old DDR modules that had RGB LEDs on them. Oh, yes. Old school. So in front of us right now, we have two implementations, basically. We have some ballistic tracers with these. This one right now that I'm holding my hand, radio, is a DDR1 module. And then this one right here, which looks almost identical, is a DDR2 module. Now, those look very familiar because I did a lot of builds with ballistic tracer memory back in those days because they were still pretty cutting edge on the performance. Mm -hmm. And it was, at least for me, the earliest implementation that I remember seeing that lit up. And now, if I remember correctly, they didn't just do pretty colors, though. They... They, uh, they had a performance, right? Like you could tell what was going on. Yeah, so when these modules were plugged in, the activity LEDs across the top, and it looks like we have four 16 lights. You can correct me if I'm wrong, if you know, but yeah, yeah you get 16 lights here. And they're RGB LEDs, but they move and change based off of the activity that the module sees. Nice, very nice. So if you are doing uh, like a game, for instance and you have a lot of interaction on your memory, then the lights are going nuts. They're going back and forth quite a bit. But if your system is just sitting there idle or maybe the screensaver is on, then only a couple of these lights are actually going to move around. Absolutely. And I remember buying quite a few of these because you could get them in custom colors to match your windowed cases. Mm -hmm. Everything from the beautiful gold that they put out for a while to different camel patterns, snow patterns, you name it. Those were actually, I think, the DDR3 modules. Mm Mm-hmm. And the implementation there, because, well, we should step back. The DDR1, DDR2, that's the ones that I have here that had activity LEDs. But when DDR3 came out, the frequencies changed to such a point where they couldn't put the activity lights on the module and have it react off of the activity there. So there was a software piece that you had to install. I think you probably remember that, Mm -hmm. that would detect the activity on the system and then communicate with the LEDs to make that sort of a change. Yeah, which suddenly starts to sound a little familiar with the uh, the Trident Zs. Kind of like what we're doing now. Exactly. So the other implementation I have here, these are awesome. These are from Corsair, the XMS2 and XMS, uh, what is this? This is the the Pro Series modules. So at the very top, they have these... um, Activity LED lights that go back and forth. Oh, I totally remember these. They were flipping awesome is what they were. Yeah, and expensive too, but some of that was the implementation of the lighting, I'm sure. These were some of the fastest and lowest latency modules that you could buy. These were 3200 megahertz, uh, low latency pro. So I think these were like cast two or cast four or something like that. Oh, wow, yeah, that's impressive. And then I even had some that were the XLs, which were even lower latency at the same speed. 
which uh, they were great for overclocking. That was awesome. And they were able to carry that up to DDR2 with that same activities, LED. But then DDR3, they kind of got away from it. Now, of course, the pinnacle modules that I have, oh my gosh, these are awesome. <laughs> the XMS Expert. And dun, I, I want to say I did these as a throwback Thursday on the Facebook page, so I might have to link it in the show notes. But these were basically the Pro Series modules, but at the very top, you had a series of pins that plugged into an external board that had the activity LEDs off of one side and then these multi-digit displays that would allow you to show any sort of information that you could program into the software and also voltages and frequencies of your memory modules. Yeah, I can't believe they're not still making something. So you'd think there'd be a demand, especially with as many LED solutions and RGB solutions as we're seeing on the market. I, I mean, I don't know why they don't do this stuff. Uh, the last implementation similar to this that Corsair did was in the DDR3 era when they implemented that little control pin so that you could get temperature and frequency information off the module. They had some... Um, it sat on top of the fans. There were some activity lights and stuff, but that was all controlled by the software that got information off those two little pins. They, oh, okay. But they didn't have this little multi-digit display and stuff like that. It was all became a, a software solution at that point, similar to that software that you had to use on your ballistics tracer memory when it was DDR3 stuff to do that activity stuff. Well, maybe with the changes that we're seeing with these new motherboards and the, especially that that cable out it'll give us an avenue to come back to some of these cool displays yeah i i can't wait to see it actually because i think with what companies are doing with rgb leds this is really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what could be done right now we just have these little activity lights and the challenge is getting everything synced up so that you would have maybe a, a light trace from the left side of your motherboard up to the right side out to the fans and then onto the lights and you could do that by timing the different zones but you should be able to do a lot more like being able to do these little digital displays doing fancy other programmable sorts of lighting something well i think i'm intrigued with the the controller aspect of it and trying to have a full ecosystem that's controlled and I got to be honest, I still think it might be cool to take my beautiful memory that I'm running today and replace it with some pretty rockin' RGB memory. And I think it goes without mentioning that the speed of the initial release as a DDR4 is starting to show some maturity too. And we're really seeing that, especially with those Trident Zs. 4133 is just amazing. I mean, I'm running 3K memory from G-Skill and I, I love it. And I'm not convinced that I need a lot faster, but the fact that that is becoming now the new norm, I think is really exciting for enthusiasts. Yeah, and that's just showing the maturity of DDR4 itself and also the memory controllers on these chips. You know, when KB Lake was released, that was when 4133 became a reality. Before that, Skylake wouldn't run that fast, that's for sure. And now that we have KB Lake X and Skylake X coming out, I've seen some, was it the X299 from EVGA? That's designed as like an Apex competitor, Asus Apex. And it supports 4133 out of the box. So, I mean, we're going to see a lot of that stuff kind of coming out. And I think 4133 is the tip of the iceberg at that point. 4133. Well, it sounds like still the sky has not been discovered for DDR4. So if you're out there looking to upgrade, it might be time to start looking at Crucial's RGB solution, Trident Zs if you have the right board, or any of these other ecosystems, because why not? 
Dennis, I know on this podcast, I've been talking a lot about upgrading because I've got the itch. You would love to upgrade. I know, and there's so many new products hitting the market, and it's exciting to see, finally, the AMD-specific products starting to get competitive again. I mean, the Ryzen processors, mm-hmm. this new crazy thread ripper thing. But today, I want to talk a little bit about video cards. As you know, I have my main machine, and it is running a 1070, and it's a good 1070, the MSI Gamer X. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome card. It is an awesome card, but... I, you know, I'm not really sure that I want to do another 1070, so I've been kind of looking at upgrading. And we've got some great cards. And my question, I guess, is we're looking at these new AMD cards, and we got two of them in front of us today, mm-hmm. is is AMD back to where they're competing with the big dogs? I mean, because I still remember a time when the AMD processors cost less and performed as well or better, and I keep getting that feeling from the advertising. <laughs> Well, we all want to go back to that era when AMD was the performance solution. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. And when we look at the RX 580 and the RX 570, which are the two cards that we have in front of you, there's reviews on the hardwareasylum.com. I'll link them in the show notes. These two cards are very solid mid-range cards. Unfortunately, they're not the high end like your 1070. Okay, so now what would be... A high end then. It's not the 580 then. Is it that R9 Fury? Well, we have the R9 Fury, but that's a generation or so old. Right. And then we have the new, uh, what is it, the Vega platform that's supposed to be coming out that it will compete with the high end 1070, 1080 carts. Right, right. And then it'll be more of an apples to apples if they can get their power in line. That's always been kind of a weak spot. Yeah, that has been where we have uh, like, what is it, the 7970s, they they were power hungry. That was their biggest downfall. Right. And when we get into the RX 570 and the 580s and even the 470 and the 480s, they're still up there in the power draw, but they're not as bad as they were. I mean, we if we look at our pin, our power sockets on here, we still have an 8-pin power socket on a, a mid-range card. That seems to be a lot of power to drive this car. Well, let's talk about these a little more specifically and where they sit in the grand scheme of things performance-wise. I want to start with the the smaller one here, the the Aurorus 570. Now, this is a gigabyte product. And now you, you mentioned that this is more of a mid-range card, but it sure doesn't look like a mid-range card. Yeah, no, the Gigabyte Aurus, and that's the Aris is the new brand name that Gigabyte has all of their gaming stuff under. Okay. They spend a lot of time with the brand marketing and also the product marketing to reach a new target audience. Right. And that's what we have here. So on this card, we have the, the Windforce cooler, which is a very famous Gigabyte cooler. Oh, yeah. And the fans, if you notice, they spin in opposite directions. Oh, I didn't notice till you mentioned it, but yeah, and and we're talking a lot of high efficiency blades. I see some texturing on them and some shaping to the wings too, which used to be a rarity. Yeah, and that's something that they've always done. Well, not always, but they're now doing on every one of the Windforce coolers. It also has RGB LED lights, which nice. is pretty cool because that way it fits into their ecosystem. The back plate is probably the coolest part of this card. And now this is standard, right? This is standard on all of the RS cards, and really backplates have really become a standard on video cards now. Oh, it's but, about time. Yeah. But this one is anodized aluminum. It um, reinforces the PCB as usual, but it also has a copper slug in the middle. I see that. That is separate from the actual backplate, and it has uh, direct contact with the reverse side of the 
GPU core. Wow. Okay. So you're getting an actual heatsink solution on the backside too. Mm-hmm. And some the heat spreaders on the back or the the back plates, they have thermal pads and they also have the screw connections to right. the board. So it's going to soak a fair amount of heat from the board itself, but it doesn't have any fins. So there's really no way for that to dissipate any heat. So it's more of really just more thermal capacity. All right. So give me some specs on this thing. How fast is a 570? Like clock speed, memory, what do we got? Okay. So our RS570 is an overclocked board sitting at 1295 megahertz in OC mode. And then in gaming mode, it's slightly less at uh, 1280. Okay, now that's a software solution, or is it? Yeah, on... that, that's software. There's no switches on these boards. Okay. So when you install the Gigabyte software, it defaults to the OC mode. And I believe that's how the BIOS is programmed to an OC mode. But okay. if you wanted to select one of the other four modes on there, you can go into silent or stock mode, and that will change the fan profiles and then also the core clock. Very nice. Now, I know in the past that AMD has been... Uh, a little bit authoritarian about design. So how does this compare to the default, the reference card? Oh, it's completely different. Um, in terms of PCB design, the RS card, I want to say, is the prettiest out of the two here. We have a very custom VRM with multi-MOSFET phases on there and very large chokes. It is very efficient in terms of the way that the board is laid out. And I want to say it translated into the overclockability of the card, where I was able to get an extra 120 megahertz out of this one. Well, it's definitely an attractive card and a little beefy, but I know you mentioned that this is more of a mid-range card, so where does it sit in the performance hierarchy? In terms of performance, I'm going to refer you to HardwareAsylum.com to see the reviews of the Gigabyte RX 570 and the new Mystery RX 580 that we have that we'll be talking about. So if you look at the charts that we have in the reviews, I listed four cards. We have the RX 570, the RX 580, the GTX 1060, and the R9 Fury from Sapphire. All of those cards are pretty equal in terms of performance. So that should give you an idea of where these cards sit in the performance hierarchy. Okay. So that, I think, is a great transition to talk about this beefy video card here that is our RX 580 sample. And I have to admit that even performance unseen, it's already near and dear to my heart because... It is the power color red devil. It's not quite the devil 13 that we talk about so often on the podcast, but it is definitely a very pretty, very beefy. It has a pedigree. It has a story to tell. It does. And in fact, we have talked a lot about power color in the past because they have gone really to extremes with their branding and their custom cooling. And I don't think there's anybody that does it quite like it. And this is... Look at the picture. You guys got to go to the review because this is just visually stunning. Yeah, the one thing the pictures won't tell you is how heavy this card is. I mean, it has some weight to it. The heatsink shroud is metal. The back plate is a nice brushed aluminum anodized piece that has a nice pentagram and some holes in it, which is very appropriate for the devil branding. It's black and red. It's multi-layered. It's it's awesome. This is one of the biggest aftermarket heat sinks I've seen in a long time. And I imagine that it has performance to match. Now, this is, again, not a reference card. So how does this fit in that hierarchy? I mean, with the NVIDIA cards, we always talk about, you know, you got the factory clock, you got the reference, you got the super clock, and then you got those boutique clocks like the Kingpin and the lightnings and such. 
So is this a competitor for those higher-end super-clocked cards? No, this would be considered like a factory overclock, similar to our RS gaming card that we just talked about. So this one comes hot-clocked. There is a separate version of this particular card, this RX 580 Red Devil, which is the golden sample. Oh. It has a better-bend GPU that will run 1425 out of the box, whereas this particular card runs like 1390 out of the box. And I was able to overclock it to 1420, give or take. So it doesn't have the same overclocking range that the 570 had, but I believe some of that is just the headroom of the chip itself. Now, we talked a little bit power consumption with the 570, but I see the 580 adds that second six-pin connector. And that could be just part of the double branding because I don't think it really needs it. It still has uh, a six-phase VRM similar to the RX 570, it is on a much taller PCB, so the the VRM design itself is actually spread out. It's not the same as the Gigabyte one. It's not as elaborate or fancy, but mm-hmm. it gets the job done, I appear. Well, as expected from the Devil line, this is, I think, very difficult, and you've really nailed it. It's hard to describe how high a quality the heatsink solution is. Now, looking at the fan solution compared to the Gigabyte solution, though, we're we're looking at more of a traditional fan structure, mm-hmm. although they're spinning in opposites again, it looks like. So how does this bad boy perform? It performed as expected. I mean, we have the, the 570 is in its own performance segment, which is slightly slower than the GTX 1060. Right. And the 580 is slightly faster than the GTX 1060. So what I'm not hearing is that this is competing with the 1070 that I already have, though, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah, it doesn't quite uh, make it to that level, which is unfortunate because it's still a mid-range solution. The 1070 was considered a mid-range card, especially now that we have the 1080 and the 1080 Ti right. and the new Titan XP and all the blah, 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 whatever. But this is also a card that is in the sweet spot of where gamers spend their money. The GTX 1060 is a good price-performance ratio. Right. And these cards are equal in performance. And in terms of price, I mean, we have the Red Devil here, golden sample, that was close to $300. The Red Devil that we have here, the RX 580, is slightly less. It's like 20 or $30 less. Well, I can absolutely make an argument that if you were in the market for a 580, this is by far the most impressive feeling card. I mean, it just oozes power power as they say the theme is strong visually stunning and it is so much larger than the 570 i just yeah it has a taller pcb similar to like what evga does with the classified cards which uh, it makes the card look bigger um i don't know if it makes it a bit more impressive you know if you pull the heatsink off the layout of the board components is the same. I mean, we have the same amount of components on this card as we have on the Gigabyte card. It just happens to be that they're spread out a bit more. And I think some of that size is just to accommodate the much larger cooler, which is the thing that we find most impressive with this card. Exactly. And I'm guessing that it lights up as well. There is a... Well, this is one thing we can talk about, actually. There's two switches on this. So where the Rs card has some software to control the GPU, this one has some switches. So there's a dual BIOS. Oh, okay. On one side, we have an OC BIOS and then a silent BIOS. 
and that changes it by like 12 megahertz. It's not really a lot. Okay. And on the other side, we have another switch, which turns the LED on and off. Oh, well, that's good, because if you get tired of all that gaudiness, you got an, uh, an answer here. Well, and that's the thing, though. It doesn't have RGB LEDs, unlike the R's card. Oh, okay. It has a single light that lights up the Red Devil logo at the top of the card. Well, it matches the theme, I guess. Yeah. But I, yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about RGB on this podcast, and... Yeah, you know, I don't know. Not everybody needs RGB LEDs. And I would say that the Red Devil card, and this is something I talk about in the review, it doesn't need RGB LEDs. It This branding only supports maybe three colors, which would be red, white, and maybe UV. And you can't really do UV with LEDs without putting another LED on there. So I'm not denying that it is a beautiful card, but... Traditionally, Dennis, we have recommended for the budget gamer looking to upgrade from, say, a you know, a 7 Series or whatever, that the 1060 would be our entry-level gaming card. And mm-hmm. we've compared both of these cards to the 1060. So I get that maybe this is not going to be something that's going to replace my 1070, and I'll have to wait for the next devil card. And that's okay. Yeah. But... Where exactly are these? I mean, who would we recommend these to? Do they replace the 1060s, our go-to budget card? I wouldn't say that it replaces it. I would say that it is a budget decision and also one that you would look at your internal ecosystem. So if, for instance, you are running a Ryzen AMD machine, right? there is proof that if you have an AMD card with an AMD processor on an AMD motherboard, everything will talk together more efficiently and give you better performance. Then if you did like an AMD motherboard CPU and then an NVIDIA card, that sort of has been proven that the drivers work better when all that stuff is put together. If you are the type that plays a lot of games that are optimized for NVIDIA cards using physics and some of the other shaders and stuff like that, that are supported on that platform, then definitely go with the GTX 1060. That will give you the best performance in your games and give you the best experience. Now, if you don't play those games or that isn't terribly important to you, you can get slightly better performance if you get the RX 580 at about the same cost. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2017. Thanks for listening.